everyone lampoons the Massachusetts Republican Party for its no-holds-barred infighting and sagging fortunes, but political consultant Gregory Maynard says the state Democratic Party isn't all that different. In a commentary he wrote for Commonwealth, Maynard argues that an extreme activist class within the party has gained so much clout that elected officials have, over time, chosen to largely ignore it. Just as Charlie Baker thrived despite the state's GOP, Maynard says Democrats have taken over Beacon Hill by ignoring the lefty leanings within the state Democratic Party. Welcome to the podcast. I am Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by Greg Maynard, a Brockton-based political consultant, and Deb Kozakowski, vice chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Greg, let's start with you. If you had to sum up your thesis, could you do do that briefly for us? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me on, Bruce. Um, so my thesis is that um, you know over the last sixteen years since the since Deval Patrick uh, won the governorship back in two thousand and six, um, the Democratic Party has declined in its usefulness to elected Democrats in Massachusetts, um, largely due to the dominance of a kind of a class of activists inside the party. And the best example of that is um, this last convention, um, the party uh, nominated, the party endorsed a number of uh, candidates, all of whom lost in the primary. So what you're seeing is a big gap between convention goers and the people who are, you know, folks who are on the state committee and folks who are really active in their town and ward, ward committees um, are really uh, has have a big gap versus the actual voters inside the Democratic Party, and I argued that the gap is so big now, and the problems facing the state are so kind of far from the concerns of Democratic Party activists that uh, there needs to be a big rethink about how we elect people, um, with you know the abolition of partisan primaries, um, and maybe even you know, rethinking how folks register to vote, like what their party preference is here in Massachusetts. So I'll ask a quick question here, just for point of clarification. When I go to cover Democratic Party conventions, the rule of thumb is that these are the people that are really into Democratic Party politics and and believe in it and are very active. So it's a bit... Um, it is a bit extreme in in some ways. It's it's not your average voter, but but that's been true for a long time. I thought. What 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 do you see happening that's different now? So I think what you've seen that's different is that um, you know. So I'm I'm uh, in my mid thirties. So I you know the first kind of campaign that I the first campaigns that I were in, was involved in was you know, 2004, 2006. And so back then, I think you saw a lot more involvement from local elected officials in the Democratic Party. Um, in like their local Demo Democratic Party, you saw mayors and state reps and state senators um, running uh, a lot of slates of caucuses. You had relationships between local committees and their local uh, nonpartisan and partisan elected officials. And I think what you've seen is that um, as active, after 2006, um, the idea that the democratic, the formal party structure was where activists should go, and it was a good way to like kind of gain, um, gain power kind of in a system that had largely locked progressives out. Um, you know, they weren't doing that well at the ballot box. Um, they've they've done that, and as a result, you have um, basically all of the powerful elected politicians in the state are Democrats. 
but they're not really involved in the formal Democratic Party structure. And it's a big problem because the Democratic Party structure, the formal party structure has a lot of special dispensations, right? There's a, they're, they're a special part of the political, um, not only the political culture, but also the political like legal landscape. And like not having access to that stuff is, you know, it's not good for, it's not good for Massachusetts. It's not good for our state's politics. Deb, you're, you're with the Democratic Party, the vice chair. What, what's your take on Greg's thesis? Well, it's an interesting perspective, and mine is um, rather different since I've been around for a longer time and have a, a, a longer sense of the history. What happens is the conventions are meant to um, bolster the candidates, give them opportunities to showcase their talents and their and obviously their wares and their their campaigns. And it also helps make them stronger in a smaller competition that's a friendly audience all around. Um, they are all Democrats. They may or may not win a quote unquote endorsement, which doesn't prevent them from running unless they don't get 15%, which is clearly um, a threshold that should be able to be met by any viable candidate to get on a statewide ballot. And, and we don't do this at the, the local level. It is merely the statewide convention. And the endorsement comes with a, a pat on the back for having secured enough delegates to win an endorsement and a little you know, bump in the media. There have been many endorsed candidates over the years, some to the left, some to the center. There are nobody in our party that runs to the right that I know of um, because that would have other... Um, issues about the party's structure. But so I think that the convention's a good thing. I think that it helps candidates, it showcases them, um, it makes them stronger. And yeah, some, some of them don't win when they ran, but it isn't always those that are further to the left that don't, that that are um, eliminated. And sometimes it is, it varies on the race and who the individuals are. So Greg, um, you you can also always pick a, an individual race or something to prove your point, but let, let's take the one you raised in your commentary. Um, Secretary Galvin, I think the last two conventions has lost the, the convention, but easily, not so easily the previous time, but easily this time at least. And and come no, easily, easily both times. Easily both. He's he's won won the won the election, uh, won the primary and then gone on to win the election. I guess it, it, that you sort of cite that to prove your case a little bit. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit more about that, because because there's other other candidates that ran this time, like Chris Dempsey and Diana DeZoglio for auditor's race. And it's a little hard maybe to tell who's the established candidate there and who's the, you know, the this activist class candidate that you're talking about, because. Uh, I'm I'm sure they both would say they appeal to that class. Uh, but Chris had the endorsement of Suzanne Bump, the incumbent, was more of a traditional oriented candidate, shall we say? What what what's your view of those two races? Yes. So I mean, I think what you saw in 2022 um was that the convention was probably and I uh Deb's um take on this would be really interesting. I think the 2022 convention was like the most regular convention in some time. Like that is um it had probably more than in previous nominating conventions. 
Um, there was a lot of delegates from previous conventions. And I think that what I've seen over the course of my time in Massachusetts politics is that in 2006, you saw a huge amount of contestation at the caucus level. So there were slates running against each other that were organized by, by folks. You saw a little bit of that in 2010 and 2014. Um, but by 2020, um, you know, for the caucuses that happened prior to the COVID epidemic starting, um, you know, so you saw a real big drop off in the amount of energy that the caucuses were getting from the Markey and Kennedy campaign. And that carried through into 2022. You saw very few contested caucuses across the state. You saw a lot of returning caucus goers. And, you know, I, I saw that firsthand. I actually managed um, Quentin Palfrey's convention uh, floor camp campaign on the on the floor in 2022. And he got the, you know, he got the um, endorsement of the of the convention that was largely on the back of Democratic state committee members who are overwhelmingly not elected by voters and don't have, you know, aren't required to have a relationship with the local or ward committees um, and by a lot of folks who, you know, would definitely be um, called, uh, you know, the activist class folks who, you know, are regulars that they're, you know, are members of their town and ward ward committee. Right. And Palfrey was really popular with those folks. But, um, you know, those folks all got on board with a candidate who didn't even end up making it to primary day. Right. Quentin dropped out before the primary and endorsed um, Andrea Campbell. So um, I, I think that you have seen like a real decline in energy over the last decade and a half. And uh, and, and I think that's coming from um, elected officials just no longer being that willing to to. Um, deal with activists that aren't that interested in electoral success um, and are much more interested in ideological purity. Deb? I'm having a hard time focusing on the fact that somehow um, a liberal, a, 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 well, I would say because Bill Galvin has been a, a liberal Democrat most of his life anyways, but that a an up-and-coming Boston City Councilor, very well-known, also a liked individual, um, in 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 Mr. Zakem, um, who won the convention and lost the primary, so that's the left versus the versus the moderate. I suppose we would we could progressive with a capital P versus the moderate, and then you're likening the exact reverse situation that happened in the auditors race with Chris Dempsey, who was the more um, more more moderate Democrat. Now, I don't. That's a a phrase that is often used and thought of as differently than what I am describing it as. And yet the more quote unquote progressive, and there is no doubt in my mind that Diana DiZoglio is, is more progressive than was Chris Dempsey, knowing both of them and they're both good people. And yet it was the exact opposite. So I don't see how those threads actually um, come together to support your theory. I will tell you this, going back to the Markey Kennedy race, there were there was competition in my community and it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Um, and it reminded me quite honestly of back in the old Dukakis days when the state party was um, really put back together by the then governor. And that's often what happens when we have Republican governors for as long as we had them, there's a little less enthusiasm in the rank and file to go out and fight the good fight, especially when we know popular Republican governors and Charlie Baker in particular was the most popular in the country, um, you know, influence a lot of otherwise good Democrats because many people who are Democratic leaning 
and are now unenrolled, look at the candidates versus the the um the race the race versus the party. So I mean, there's a there's some grain of truth to what Craig, Greg says, but his examples don't um, put them on display. Can I ahead, jump Greg. in? Yeah. So I'm gonna. I I think the I think the Diana Dezaglio, um Chris Dempsey uh, thing kind of shows a a another piece of this that I think is on top. I think I think the thing that I am identifying is is part of a kind of broader thing that's happened in Massachusetts. Josh Josh Zakem won three communities, right? He won Cambridge, Boston, and Somerville, and he lost 348 other communities and. Uh, Massachusetts. I think he might have won Northampton, but he won. He those were the only three communities that no, he ran. So, um, so he only won three three communities, right? And so I think what you've and and I think that in particular the Diana Dezaglio Chris Dempsey um, one is so interesting because what I think what you've got there is um, the progressives, the quote unquote progressives, really are a pretty narrow part of the um, pretty narrow part of the party but they they have a dominant piece of uh of determining stuff right so i think you've diana disaglio there was a number people had a number of issues with diana disaglio's previous record on uh on immigration and on gay rights that got talked about um ad nauseum if you were at the con convention you heard a lot about it chris dempsey was the more uh traditional liberal candidate in that race like diana disaglio was was she more of a populist? That's one hundred percent true. Was she anti-establishment? That's also that's also true. Um, but she was a she was a more traditional. She was in a lot of ways a much more traditional politician than Chris Dempsey was. Right? She's a you know, she was a state house staffer. She was a um, you know a senior staffer at a union. She was a state rep. She was a state senator versus Chris Dempsey, who had been a management consultant, um, led a couple of nonprofits, and then run for statewide office. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, in terms of their careers, and also in terms of, I think, how they're perceived by those convention goers, Chris was seen as the, like, outside candidate, as the liberal, as the liberal candidate against um, a candidate who was maybe, like, in her bearing, like, more populist, like, more Bernie Sanders-esque, but, like, not, not seen that way policy, uh, not seen that way on like social policy, I think. I yeah. can't I can't even start to try to disentangle the confusion that you have rested by mixing two peas in two different pods coming out with the same uh, recipe. So I think I'm going to move on to what we need, what one of the things we do need to do and we are doing as a party. Number one, the party's goal is to elect Democrats, and we do do that. The second piece is reinvigorating our ward and town committees. That is uppermost in my mind as the vice chair. I was part of the Young Turks of the Dukakis era, and I was very young, I might add. I was When I was elected city chair in Chicopee, I was the youngest ever elected and remain so, and I was the first woman. So I know what it's like to be, you know, pushing at the quote unquote strings of power at a local level. And let's face it, local is where it's at. Things are getting better. I expect with a governor in the in the corner office that we're going to be able to recruit more people younger and new people aren't necessarily young or old. 
I think it's good to bring in new blood and new people all the time to the ward and town committees and become what we are meant to be. And that is a democratic organization that elects democratic candidates. Sure, our primaries get a little contentious. Um, you know, I, I would go back to that very old, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm a Democrat, that holds true. And and that shows the diversity within our party, both in age, in, in philosophy, and in governing. So I would say that we're in a very strong position um, to move forward as a stronger party by sometimes it does take going back to the future and looking at what worked in the past to increase um, and add the modern twist to it to increase our participation at the local level. And I think that's what we're focused on. That's what we've been focused on. And obviously it worked. We won an, we won an election this year, important election. So Greg, let me take this back to a little bit broader subject. So when Baker was winning, he clearly walked away from his state party because they went in a different direction and he gravitated to the middle. Uh, I don't know if the two of you would agree, but it seemed to me Maura Healy sort of did the same thing. She didn't walk away from the Democratic Party, but she sort of she sort of said a lot of nice things about Charlie Baker and moved. I think she's perceived just because of her background and who she is. She was perceived as liberal, very liberal leaning, but she was sending signals through a campaign that she didn't have much competition in that she was moving more toward the center, which which is maybe not a bad thing, you know, get that that you have extremes out there, but but in the end, the vast middle ground is where most people, most voters are. So you gravitate there. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's what the current system is uh, makes it difficult to happen. I mean, so um, I've uh, like said, I'm a political consultant. A lot of my experience here in Massachusetts is I've run a lot of mayoral small small city mayoral campaigns here in in Massachusetts and Brockton and Newton and Somerville and in Revere. And my experience doing that is a big piece of why I wrote this, this piece. Um, you know, in, in 2015, I managed um, a campaign in Revere where an at-large city councilor challenged the incumbent mayor and people thought he was going to get creamed. Um, but there was a third, there was a third opponent in the, in the race. And on preliminary day, um, my candidate came in just a hundred votes behind the incumbent. If that had been a partisan race, that would have been the end. Dan Rizzo, the, the incumbent, won by the skin of his teeth, and he would have got to go on to the general election where there's probably not a opponent because in Massachusetts we have, you know, the highest incumbency rates in the in the country, and we have very few competitive elections. But because it was a nonpartisan process, Brian got to advance to the second round. And in the second round, a ton of people came out, more people than have voted in any recent mayoral election, and he ended up winning by a hundred votes. You don't see, you don't get an opportunity to do that here in Massachusetts, right? Candidates only get one bite at the apple because of that partisan primary process. And so, um, you know, so as a result, um, you know, the candidates largely aren't being picked by folks who are involved in the party, right? Like that is to Deb's point, like it's true, like the Democratic Party isn't that involved in the primary process, but there's a lot of interests that are, right? Like you can look at OCP, you can look at campaign finance reports and see that you know, there's a lot of unions, there's environmental groups, they spend heavily in uh, primaries for Massachusetts legislators, and they're largely on the side of incumbents, right, protecting incumbents from challengers. And so I just think if you want to see 
you know, if you want to see a government that looks more like the electorate and that is more responsive to the electorate, you need to be able to push through. You need to have candidates have their real election in November and not have this artificial process where, um, you know, where where pluralities of votes are enough to get through and just give you uh, give you an office. Um, and, and that's what we have here in Massachusetts. Yep. There you go again, Greg, mixing apples with oranges. But, you know, nonpartisan races and partisan races are two different bites of two different pieces of fruit. And that's the way the state legislature and most states in the union operate. Georgia has no party registration. Vermont has no party registration. You can't get two states that are further apart philosophy-wise over the years than those two. And somehow Democrats have managed to win in Georgia, finally, and Democrats have lost in Virginia. I mean, Virginia, excuse me, that too, have lost... <laughs> have lost in Vermont, or unfortunately. So I don't see where that connection follows through universally. I understand your I understand you have a different perspective than me, but I think that the primary process, and yes, the Democratic Party does get involved in the primary process. They promote primaries. Individually, do they, other than the convention statewide? No, they don't get involved in that. But the individual members of the party who are the same activists that you're talking about and the delegates are usually very involved in their communities and involved in those races, both the primaries that are partisan, especially, quite frankly, those are the ones that get really interesting um, and have many, um, I don't want to say heated, but yeah, sometimes people get heated when they're on opposite sides of, of, a, of a campaign. And the one thing that Democrats have been able to do and successfully is Put it aside. When it's over, we move on and support whoever was, um, you know, the nominee, because that's our job to support Democratic nominees in nonpartisan races. It just doesn't work that way. And that would be a, it's a whole different level of campaigning and not comparable to the Democrats and Republicans, um, you know, Hatfield and McCoy relationship. Greg, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean. Massachusetts had partisan primaries in their um, in their local elections until pretty recently, until like World War II. Um, so, you know, I think that you've, you know, I think what you've I think what you've seen um, here in Massachusetts is that you just have more dynamic politics at the uh, at the municipal level um, because of that nonpartisan because the the elections are able to get to people and then they're able to advance to November and. You know, I think I think as of, for instance, like this past gubernatorial election is an excellent um, example where, you know, and this is largely this is uh, another part of my thesis that I think is really important. Massachusetts is an overwhelmingly Democratic state, right? Democrats have had a um, have had a supermajority in the legislature um, for most of my life um, since since the since the like since before I was born in the House and um and, and so you've got mo a lot of the politics that happen in our state are happening inside the Democratic Party. And it just wasn't set up to actually have a lot of these discussions happen, right? Like our system is set up with a partisan primary process to have a healthy Republican Party and a healthy Democratic Party get to November and contest the race. But in, that just isn't happening in, in most of Massachusetts. Um, I live in Brockton and Plymouth County, where there are some of those races, right? We have some of the few races that actually go to November, but 
you know, I do a lot of races in the Boston area and they don't have November races in um, for legislature or for state for for state Senate. Right. And for governor, it's just a matter of getting out the vote. Right. There aren't real choices being presented to voters because so much of the state's politics happen inside the Democratic Party. And I just don't think that it's I just don't think it's the role of a party. It's like too much to ask of the Democratic Party to contain most of the state's politics. And I think most of the problems that we see in both parties are from the Democratic Party's dominance in the state, right? The Republican Party has become so small that it can be taken over by, you know, by Jim, Jim Lyons and his crew. And the Democratic Party is kind of too big to be used in any kind of useful way as a as a healthy party. And that's why I just think that yeah, that's that that's why I just think you need to there's a lot of fights happening inside the Democratic Party that don't shouldn't be there. They should be at the ballot box in November and voters don't get that chance. Well, I there we don't have that much time. So and and you've done a lot of talking, Greg, and and we've been friends a long time and we have had agreements and disagreements. And again, I have to disagree with you. We do have a strong Democratic Party in Massachusetts. Um, we do fend off many Republicans and we scare them off. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing when your job is to elect Democrats. And that's what the Democratic Party is here to do. That is our job, to elect Democrats. It's not our job to get Republicans. It is our job to convince our unenrolled voters, which is another add to the mix, to vote for Democrats. And generally, many of them do, not all, but many. Charlie Baker is proof that not all do. We lost tremendously. And the largest growing party, if you want to call independence a party, are the unenrolled voters. Both parties are losing members because just, and frankly, I think it's the Republican partisanship that's come out of the national that has really affected many individuals to just say, I don't want to be a member of any party. And yet still here in Massachusetts, Democrats hang together. You look at New York, We New York folks who our activists in New York often come to me and ask, what are you doing in, in Massachusetts? We're so jealous of you that you really, really do get great support from people for the Democratic Party. And that is true. Um, it's a little too long, long a story to you know, give you the magic mix. And it doesn't always work, obviously. Quite often we're that big, we're that big blue cake, frosted cake with one red candle in the governor's office. Um, and now we've got it all and we're going to hope to do the best we can to be able to maintain that and stay true to our progressive values. And I don't mean the activist version of capital P progressive, although I respect very much um, everybody's opinion, but the progressive values that started with FDR and have held us at Democratic Party together for the last century. Yeah, I mean, I think the proof is kind of in the pudding, right? And New York, so Deb pointed out that New York and um, Massachusetts are both uh, states that have um, big Democratic parties, but are in a much different place, right? New York has a very uh, well-organized left left opposition that's um, that just defeated their uh, the governor's pick for for judge. But here in Massachusetts, right, we have a both in New York and in Massachusetts, we have a huge transit crisis, we have a huge housing crisis, and like that stuff, you know, that I think it's. You're, you're seeing the energy in the legislature, you know, acting recently on those things coming out of the municipal level. And I don't think that it's a I don't think that it's a coincidence that the energy is coming out of the municipal level where there's nonpartisan elections that go all the way to November and voters are able to, like, really make their 
uh, their views known on where they, how they feel about those issues, right? I'm in my mid thirties. Like I have had like the housing crisis has been going on for, you know, my entire adult, my entire adult life. And, and that's what we need, you know, the state government is supposed to solve people's problems, right? We have a T system that doesn't work. We have a housing crisis that is getting worse. And, um, and, and I just don't think that, uh, I just don't think that the reason to not reform the system is because, you know, we support, like we all vote for the same presidential candidate, right? Like we all support Joe Biden, we support Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey. But the reality is, is that inside the Democratic Party, there are big disagreements about housing, about transit, and those just don't get a hearing because they only happen inside the Democratic partisan primary. They don't go all the way to November. You don't get high turnout elections where voters have a real choice. Again, uh, very quickly, I know that I'm going to get the last word in if I can, um, because I feel a little overwhelmed by some of the repetitive that that isn't really being addressed. And that is the job of the Democratic Party is to elect Democrats. That is what we do, and we do it well. We have had a lot of those um, red candles and some of those issues, and a lot of those issues have been incumbent upon us to try to push through to get a governor that will work with us. We have that now with Mara Healy. It's been a while. Deval Patrick did a good job and did, made a lot of progress and it got really slam dunked by the Republican Party because as moderate as Charlie Baker is, he is still conservative Republican in the traditional sense. So I would argue that electing Democrats is very important and having the governor be in tune with the with the legislature. And by the way, my mayor is an unenrolled voter and he's been the mayor uncontested for every race but his first one. So it's not, it's there's a lot of points to be made. But thank you so much for having us on. And Greg, I enjoyed having a little bit of sparring with you. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime. Yes, and uh, I want to say thanks to Greg, Greg Maynard, Deb Kazakowski, And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much.